Welcome, <clears throat> welcome on this Palm Sunday. <clears throat> Get my throat cleared up. And uh, <coughs> Pastor Nate is on his way to uh, Virginia for a family wedding. All the girls are in their dresses to get out and go right into the wedding. And even Judah, I don't know how that's all going to work, but uh, they're on their way. Our pastor will be back here next Sunday. But uh, he said, uh, Dad, how, since when's the last time you preached Palm Sunday? I said, maybe 25 years ago. I don't know. Because I like to see, <clears throat> even as general superintendent, I wanted the pastors in the pulpit on Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. And because uh, th this is the greatest week we have to celebrate. And we thank the Lord for that. And so uh, it's exciting. We can, we can celebrate something nobody else can celebrate. And we need to take advantage of this week and thank the Lord for that. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6 about you are sent. And this will tie in with Palm Sunday for God sending his son <clears throat> that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. When it touched... <clears throat> my mouth, and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous to make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Sounds kind of harsh, but it's, he's talking about preaching the word, and this will be the result because they're going to stay in their rebellion. And so it's a call to ministry, and he says you're not going to be successful. <laughs> but you're to preach the word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. We pray that you illuminate it to our hearts and minds. Grant us power by the Holy Spirit uh, to obey and to be ones that are sent. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Christianity once was the backbone of America, Judeo-Christian society, which meant it was pretty much based on God's word and, and the principles of God's word, which undergirds much of our constitution and, and our Bill of Rights and our uh, Declaration of Independence. But today it's under a cruel and relentless attack. 
We see it in Florida where, simple, where a simple law to protect the kids in kindergarten through the third grade from brainwashing of gender and sexual politics is being universally condemned by the media and even companies like Disney. We see it in schools across the country that promote, quote, transitioning underage children without their parents' consent to a new gender identity, including using drugs to accomplish this. We see it in the wake of COVID where a public health emergency was used to close down churches. Never thought I'd see that in America. And even forced people to get vaccinated against their religious freedoms. While under attack from the culture, the church has internal struggles in which we, have, we are dealing with. It's perceptions. Some define the church as a place where certain things happen. They, they're identifying marks that include uh, preaching, uh, right administration of ordinances, of baptism and the sacraments. And, and the church, therefore, is defined primarily as a place where a person goes to hear the Bible, is taught, participates in the Lord's Supper in some cases, and then goes home. Others view the church as a vendor of religious goods and services. From this perspective, uh, members are viewed more as customers for whom the religious goods and services are produced. I hate to say it, I think I'm afraid sometimes our pastors today, with a lot of this marketing theology and, and, and some of the more extreme church growth stuff, sees the sees the people as customers to fulfill their vision and what they want for their, their own vision in the church. Churchgoers <clears throat> expect the church to provide a wide range of religious services. You know, they've got to have great worship and children's programs and small groups and parenting seminars and all those are good. But it becomes like a vendor mentality and it ends there. That's the problem. It stops there. But we're going to see it can't stop there because we're sent. However, when we realize that God is a missionary God in the Bible is the grand narrative of God's missionary activity. From Genesis 3.15, it says the serpent, about the serpent biting the heel of the Messiah, the Redeemer, but he would crush its head. It was, it was a message of, a, of God's salvation through history. And this is the narrative and recording of that history. It, it's God's missionary activity. So we begin to understand that the nature of the church is rooted in the character of God. It's not defined by the, by the things we do, and they are all good things. But the church must be defined by who God is and his character rooted in, in him. The church still gathers together, but the difference is we don't gather for our own sake. Instead, we gather for the sake of others or better yet, for the sake of God's mission. So we gather and we have koinonia, and we need to, and acts, we see that, and all those are good things. But when we gather, the nature of the church is to be the nature of God, and he's a missionary God. So a church needs a fresh vision of God, not a vision from God. Sometimes we're out just, I need a vision from God on what to do. And I often think, no, first of all, you need a vision of who God is. Because if I have a vision of who God is, then I begin to understand what God's purposes are. And if I align myself with God's purposes, 
then there's the anointing of the Spirit to carry that out. But sometimes we want the anointing and all those things without understanding who God is. And so that has to come first. The anointing of the Spirit follows the vision of God. And knowing who God is illuminates the purpose of God. Very important. A.W. Tozer, <coughs> before I give you this quote, you don't have to close your eyes. I never liked it when preacher says close your eyes. But I'm going to ask, close your eyes if you want. <laughs> I'm going to say one word, and I want, I want you to, what comes to your mind. I'm going to say one word. Ready? God. Something came to your mind. You don't have to say it out loud. A.W. Tozer said this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. No religion has ever been greater than its idea of God, and the most determined fact that about any man is not what in a given time he may say or do, but what is in his deep heart can see God to be like. We are what we think. Two sociologists from Baylor University surveyed a thousand people with the question, what is your view of God? And, and the results are just similar to what A.W. Tozer said. They said, the, peop the people view, who view God determines your attitude about econ the economics, war, natural disaster, science, justice, social morality, and love. The most important thing about a person is how they see God. And how I see God determines how I relate to God and how God relates to me. If I have the wrong conception of who God is, how am I going to relate to Him? See, we have to have a reference point outside ourselves. Because our hearts are desperately wicked and it's turned in toward itself and wants its own way and a carnality, a rebellion against God that, that uh, we can't change, we can't control, we can't cure. And so we all fall under God's ascend and fall under God's judgment and His holiness because we can't get out of this state. Now, if I am closed in and that's all I have as a reference point is me, then all kinds of terrible things come. Like Adolf Hitler. Oh, he was a reference point to himself. And so he says, the German race is a superior race. The Jews are the inferior race, and six million Jews in a Holocaust. It's even worse with Stalin, but a reference to themselves. I think I mentioned last week, Karl Marx, a reference to himself. What was his solution for mankind? Economics. Because there's no reference outside himself. You see how dangerous that is? We see it scattered throughout history. I have to have a reference that's outside myself because what's in here can't be allowed to define me because it will bring all kinds of evil. I need set free from this, and I need a reference point and someone to bring that deliverance, and that's God himself who does that. And then that reference point, which is God's word, defines who I am, and the Spirit of God produces that in us. So when we ask for forgiveness, we sang the song about God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, the gospel says. Why? For you and I. He knew the cross was coming. 
He knew that all these shouts of Hosanna on Palm Sunday were somewhat shallow. He knew what he was facing. And even in the garden, he knew what he was facing. He went to the cross. No one took his life from him. He says, I lay it down freely. I'm doing what the Father has said. So, too often, how we see God determines so many things. Some people see that God is a man upstairs like Homer Simpson, a gray-haired God, and you just treat him like, well, he's the man upstairs. Man, I, I've heard that phrase and never liked it. Oh, yeah, God's... Yeah, I, I, I serve God. He's the man upstairs. He takes care of me. Or sometimes uh, we see God as a mean old man God who sends people to hell <clears throat> or who didn't allow some, who allowed some abuse that I had from family members or whatever. And so he's a mean God. And so that's your picture of God. And it just, you just never get free of that without Christ's intervention. intervention. Or the good old boy like Morgan Freeman in the movie Bruce Almighty. God's just your buddy. He's just there to help you have a good time. And then some see God as the bellhop God. Ding, ding. You believe God is here to serve you and to provide for you. Whatever you desire. And then prosperity doctrines and all kinds of things come out of that because of this wrong view of who God is. That some guy, all I need to do is give God my gift, Christmas gift lift, and he's going to give me everything. That's not who God is. He promises all kinds of things for us to care for us and all those things. But he's not a bellhop. The key is you need to see God the way God sees himself. Until you really see who God is, you can't see who you are, and you can't see who other people are. And so you're tied up in this whole circle of self-centeredness, and, you're, and we're trapped in that. About 2,800 years ago, Isaiah saw from a front row seat a view of God. <laughs> he was a righteous man. He was respected. This is Isaiah. He saw what and who God is, and when he saw God as God, Isaiah was never the same. He became a sent man. Who will go for us? He raises his hand immediately. The reason he was sent is the reason why you and I should be sent. Everyone here, you are sent. You're a sent person. I truly believe that the best and greatest life and only life to live is the one that follows Christ and is fully yielded and surrendered to him. And when I don't, and I start negotiating with him, and problems come in my life, and, and uh, you go to God because, boy, you need him now, and say, God, I've got a problem. And he says, yeah, you sure do. But if I'm totally yielded to him, surrendered and walking to him, I go to him, say, God, this is a great problem. And he says, yeah, that's my problem too, because you're surrendered to me. We'll take care of that. And we'll work through that. There's two different ways to walk. You have to choose. Isaiah had a front row seat to see who God is, and it changed his life forever. From that moment on, he became a sent person. And that being sent, the same reasons that Isaiah was sent, 
are the same reasons for us to look at this morning. Three points. Won't take too long. One number one, we are sent because of the holiness of God. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. Can't read that enough. Uzziah has died. He's a great king for 50 years. There's peace in the land. Now the country is weak and disarrayed, and in the ancient Near East, whenever there's a vacancy in the kingship, then the Assyrians or whoever was the strongest army was ready to come and march in and invade. It was an opportunity. That just was the way it was. So everyone's concerned. Everyone's a little bit of afraid. And in this verse, you've got two kings. You've got one king that's dead with an empty throne, and you've got one king who lives, and that throne is never empty. The throne of God. Mind your future is not dependent upon who sits in the White House. It's anchored on the throne of God and the character of God. That determines my life and where I go and what I do. And that's where my hope has to be. So this picture we have here is the seraphs coming and saying, Holy, holy, holy. Probably the most singular picture of God you'll find in the Old Testament. It's repeated three times, which is an emphasis like taking your computer screen and highlighting it and put bold, underline, italics, shadow, holy, holy, holy in the Hebrew. That was the emphasis. When you go through all what we call the lexicons and the dictionaries, every, every they come to this word, it always characterized God. Every 12 references to the name of God in the Old Testament refers to God as holy. In other words, it's the chief attribute of God, is holiness. My granddaughter, <clears throat> Samantha, was reading Leviticus for school. So she told me about it, and uh, I said, well... <clears throat> I want you to read that and tell me what the most important word is in there. Because I, when, I when I started reading Leviticus, first of all, I became a speed reader. <laughs> and, and secondly, I realized I had insomnia issues. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got to plow your way through some of those genealogies. So she read through it the next day. That was part of her assignment. And she brought it up. I wasn't going to bring it up. I thought, you know, Holy Spirit, if, if you're working in this girl's heart. You, you, I mean, so she came to me and she said, Papa, I read it. And I said, well, what's the key words? Well, it mentions uh, offerings and mentions this and that. And so we kind of looked through that. I said, what's, what word's the most important word, the key word? And we came to the conclusion, holy is that word. When you look at Leviticus, it's holy. Because you have this, it's 87 times holy possessions, holy clothes, holy place, holy land, holy utensils, holy days. So, God, so what that means is it is a God who sides with good over evil, right against wrong. It's not swayed by the laws of Congress under the decisions of the court. God determines what is right or wrong, and it stands forever. 
no matter what a country or a king, a dictator, or a congress will say. God's law reigns supreme. So the same God who is against sin, in what you see in this passage, is for the sinner. Never forget that. The same God that is against sin is for the sinner. The reason he's against sin is because he's holy. And nothing sinful or that is lower than the standard of his holiness can even exist in his presence. But because he's holy, his love for the sinner causes him to say, I must create a situation where those that I love, by my, that by grace, through faith alone, they can make that decision to be changed and, and that sin to be forgiven. You don't come to God to get, to get things. You come to God, first of all, for him to get you and to cleanse you and to make you whole. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit enters us and changes us, transforms us. The old's passed away, the new has come, and then you've got to walk in the Spirit. Sometimes in our journey in life and through the years, we get bumped around. Sometimes we even get lazy. But there's a hook that the Holy Spirit brings us back to himself. And when those days come, you need to respond to those days in what God is saying. So we are sent because God is holy. Secondly, we are sent because of the heart of God, not just his holiness. Verses 5 through 7, Isaiah sees who he is. He was terrified. Woe is me means, uh, in the Hebrew, bankrupt. Even as good a man as Isaiah was in the community and as highly as people thought of him, he says, woe is me, I'm bankrupt. I'm ruined. That Hebrew word means unraveled. I'm unraveled. I've seen the king, high and exalted. But, you know, in America so often has the wrong view of God. It's okay, God, we're cool. I used to be told that in witnessing. Oh, yeah, I'm cool with God. He's my buddy. We ignore the view of life and say it's okay to end a baby's life with abortion because we have no reference point outside ourselves. It's okay to trash tradition of marriage of a man to a woman because we have no reference point outside ourselves. And so the culture's pressing in and, and confusing our thoughts and our emotions and that spirit of evil, of antichrist, trying to work into the hearts of our children through schools and society. And where's the church going to be? It's got to stay true to what God wants. So we see what God says, your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. God didn't say, oh, your self-esteem's too low. Let's get you some counseling for that. Or you just need to be more positive. Just think good thoughts. No, God sends the angel, Sarah, and says, you're right, woe is you. You're unraveled. You're full of sin. This will take your sin away. It was an atonement from the altar. Picture the atonement. Is, is an action of God on Isaiah. And he was forgiven and he was purified. 
God says you're right, but there's only one remedy for spiritual bankruptcy and sin. It's forgiveness. And the only path to forgiveness is an atonement. So often we, you know, you've got to keep those together. I can't be forgiven without an atonement. And God, through Christ, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, goes to the cross and God puts on him the sins of us all. And he paid atonement, a ransom. He paid the penalty for my sin and yours. Undeserved grace and love. Forgiveness is free, but it's sure not cheap, is it? Atonement is not what somebody has to pay a penalty on sin in order to be forgiven. It's a cleansing atonement. And we could talk about the Day of Atonement, Most Holy Place, all those things. But when you look at the cross, you see the heart of God. When you look at the tears of Christ, and maybe you'll get to watch The Passion this week if you can handle that movie. About once a year is all I can do. But when you look at the tears of Jesus, you see the heart of God. When you see the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, you see the heart of God. And when you see the suffering of Jesus, you see the heart of God. When you see the death of Jesus, you see the heart of God. God is saying you need atonement for your sin, but you cannot do it. A finite life cannot pay for something that's infinite. So God made the sacrifice himself. The soul of a person never dies, made in the image of God. And God wants us cleansed and whole and with him. I'm somewhat impatient. Yeah, I'm very impatient. <clears throat> when people say the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. And I hear that sometimes. And the Old Testament's minimized. And look at this passage of Scripture. The God of comfort is the same God in both Old and New Testaments. It's not primarily a God of condemnation. It's one of salvation. It's one of a message of redemption. God's first instinct is not to judge sin. His first instinct is what? To atone. That's what Genesis 3.15 is about. So when you think of God's holiness, he's holy, he will and must punish sin. But his first instinct for you and I is redemption and love. God puts us into a place where he can forgive us. Your, your sin and mine's demolished that relationship. This morning you have an opportunity because in God and in Christ, He's provided the situation where you can be forgiven and God Almighty, the creator of the universe, can restore that relationship with you. God says he's put eternity in the heart of man. There, there's, a, there's a part of us that we try to stuff all kinds of things in. It's like a black hole. And it's never satisfied. Why? Because God's put eternity in our hearts. And that is a place for God, the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to reside and make his home in us, as the Gospels talk about. So the heart of God. So it's not just the holiness of God, or the heart of God, but finally the hope of God. 6.8, it says, 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? It's strange, isn't it? The word says, us. It, Isaiah must be entering a Zoom meeting with the triune God. <laughs> a conversation between the three persons of the Trinity. Talking to themselves. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then the question comes out, which is the same to us. Who will go for us? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I. The original Hebrew should be translated, here am I. It's not, it shouldn't be translated, here I am. If you see that in a translation, that's not right. Two different things. Here I am is location. Here am I is filling out the application. Big difference. Here I am, Lord. And sometimes we miss the here I am. Oh, that's the mission board. That's the depuse. That's somebody else. That's me and more. No, here am I, is what he says. So Jesus came, you've heard this, not just to save us, but so that we could reach others. You know, we no longer have a draft in this country for the military. It's totally a volunteer army, so you should always thank people for their service. They volunteered to protect us and to care for us. But God also has a voluntary army, but there's one big difference. God expects everyone to volunteer. <laughs> he doesn't force you, but he expects you to volunteer That's because that's who he is and his character. And if you're going to reflect his character and you love him, you're going to be doing what his purposes and plans are. And as a soldier, you know you're going to go to places that are pretty difficult. We read that here in the passage of Scripture. He's saying to Isaiah, you're going to preach and you're going to minister and I'm sending you, but it's going to be tough. They're not going to listen. And that's still the graciousness of God giving opportunity. But he's saying the actual preaching of the word is going to make a callous. Now, if I uh, uh, take some water on the beach and mix it up in the sand and the sun's shining on it, what happens? It's hard. If I put a stick of butter out there on the sidewalk in the middle of the sun, what happens? It melts. Same sunlight, one melts, one gets hard. Same gospel, one gets hard and calloused and one responds. It's how we respond. Like Romans 1 says, God gave them over. If you continue in disobedience, you actually come to a point where you really can't hear from God. I shared Monday in um, Ohio Christian University, the other Dr. Williamson, Ben, in his class. And in that process, I shared just a little of my testimony. Of course, Ben kept priming the pump because he knows the story and stuff he wanted me to say that I didn't really, I don't really say that publicly anyway. But part of it was, I used to, you know, I'd compromise with God, had a contract with God, here's what I'll do, here's what you'll do, and 
that's kind of how I walked my life. And a Sunday school teacher got a hold of me, said, you got to stop doing that. But the long and short, what the point was, I would come to services and I'd feel his presence. I knew God's word. I knew the spirit of God. I knew when he moved. We has, we, I was in a church where altars were filled, a church where I received a call to ministry. And we'd sing, just as I am, and I'm thinking, I'd grab a hold of the back of the pew till the oak juice started to come out. I wasn't going to go forward. I just, no, Lord, I'm not, I'm not. One day, I suddenly realized that I couldn't hear anything from the Lord. I didn't need to grab the pew because there was nothing drawing me or convicting me. That was a wake-up call. And that's what God is saying to Isaiah. So you see how important it is to respond to God when he speaks to you? There's no neutral thing in here. The devil wants you. God wants you. By God's grace, he's provided a way for you to be safe and to be with him and fulfilled in all that he designs you to do and be. And by his grace, his grace alone, through faith in Christ, you make that choice. What you need to understand is once you share the mission, everything else is up to God. That's, that's what you have to see. So you've seen the holiness of God. You've seen the heart of God, the hope of God, the hope of the word. Well, here I am. I will go gladly. I like Spurgeon's uh, quote. When he asked, was asked by a student, can people be saved that have never heard the gospel of Christ? Good question. Spurgeon said, that is a disturbing question, but more disturbing question is, can people be saved, who, people who are saved and receive the gospel and do nothing about bringing lost people to Christ is the greater question. If Jesus is precious to you, then you'll be speaking to people and sharing the gospel. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. In John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus makes it clear that he has been sent by the Father. We're, we're post-resurrection here, okay? Do you realize that we're the only religion that can have a holy week to celebrate the bodily resurrection of our Lord and God? In Myanmar, they have a water festival, and you get soaking wet everywhere. And that's their big celebration. For Christianity, no, it's Palm Sunday and Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday. That's who we are. And that has to be shared. I think you need to look, and, and Isaiah, he's sent. He's a sent man now. Would you do something for me? Look at someone, especially to help wake you up a little bit, maybe. Say, uh, you are sent. You have to say it to me. No one's by you. You are sent. Yeah. So Jesus says to the disciples, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. We can't get away from it. Now, you don't have to go to Myanmar or necessarily like that. If God calls you, okay. But you can have a prayer list of people that don't know Christ. 
You can ask God to get, put people in your path to share the gospel and get prepared. It's, it's not hard. Have what we call an elevator speech. If you're with someone in the elevator, you've got a set a certain amount of time and you're just going to tell the story of what you want. Lawyers will tell you to do that before you go to a case. But we do that with the gospel. Be able to just share what God's done in your life. I, used to, I would drive down High Street. High Street's changed so much since I was here. Uh, but I would go down the courthouse square every so often. I just had to get away from so many Christians. I loved them, fed them, but I needed to be around some people that really needed the Lord that maybe no one was talking to. And I'd sit on the bench down there and ask the Lord to bring me people, sometimes homeless, sometimes someone coming out of the courthouse, someone times weeping because of whatever was done in the court. And I was sent there. It was a great time. It kept me sharp. It kept me focused of who I was. I didn't want to be trapped in just the walls of the church and just feeding the flock, which is as good in all its ways and all the koinonia and all the fellowship. Love all that. But I didn't want it to dull the edge of the sword, the point of the spear of my first calling. And that's your calling too. Jesus in this sentence is doing more than simply drawing a vague parallel between his mission and ours. He deliberately and precisely makes his mission and our mission the same. As the Father has sent me. Think about it. <laughs> so I send you. You're sent. Today when you leave the church, I'm going to Tell you your sin. Shake your hand. I hope you do that all over the church. I hope next Sunday you do it. That we are a place where we're sent. It's not just on our signs, but it's who we are. And we embrace everyone. We're going to pray. I want to pray for you. Something may have stirred in your heart. And as we worship, you're welcome to come and pray. Just be by yourself. It's fine. You want someone to pray with you. Be glad to do that. But whatever the Lord's speaking, maybe you've, you've been <clears throat> negotiating too long. Right now, the Spirit of God, you're, you wish I'd quit talking. And the Spirit of God's speaking to you. Maybe you just, got, you just received a burden and say, yeah, Lord, I, I, I'm sent. I, I get it, I'm sent. And you want to pray for a fresh infilling of the Spirit to, to say that. Maybe you're there's been healing occurring, particularly the last two Sundays and Sundays before, of, of emotions and healing memories and, and things that are baggage that kind of keep us, our view of God, of who He is. And suddenly today, you see who God is, and you just want Him to fill you with His Spirit. So you need to do business with God now. I've basically delivered the message. I've set the table for you best I know. And I'm telling you, I love you, and I know where the answer is, and it's in Christ Jesus. And you can have that today. Father God, 
we do thank you and worship you. We thank you that you died for our sins. We thank you on that, what we call Palm Sunday. You knew all those hosannas were pretty shallow. You knew what was coming. And yet you didn't stop. Thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you for the plan of salvation from the Garden of Eden fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus, our coming King and Lord who will set this kingdom literally in place someday of the new heaven and the new earth. But meanwhile, you tell us we're sent and we want to be sent just in whatever venue you've called each of us to work in, whatever vineyard. I pray now, Holy Spirit, to just speak to hearts and lives and particularly make application where they're living, where they are, what their needs are, that they would not just be ordinary, but they would be sent ones, filled with your spirit and fulfilled and used by you. We love you and praise you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Worship team comes and